Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 135. I have Dr. Jason Horolak on the show today. He is a probiotic researcher, educator, and clinician. His passion for gastrointestinal health, the gut microbiota, and probiotics were actually uh, ignited, I guess, during the final year of his undergrad training. And subsequently, he did his honors with first class results and a PhD degrees in the area of gastrointestinal microbiota, irritable bowel syndrome, and the clinical applications of pre and probiotics. He's written extensively in the medical literature on topics, including 16 textbook chapters, and his research has been cited over 900 times. So of all the people to bring uh, on the show to discuss the microbiota, I think you can agree, Jason is going to be a very handy guy for me to talk to and share all of what he shares with us with you guys. Uh, I ask Jason a whole bunch of questions today, things like, you know, what if you have reduced the amount of things that you can eat right down to like a few small select vegetables and some meat and everything else seems to make you blow up like a balloon. You can't do FODMAPs, you can't do oligosaccharides, you know, all the stuff that actually feeds uh, good microbiota. What do those people do? I ask him about IBS. I ask him about stool tests and which types of stool tests we should be going for. I ask him about, uh, gosh, what else do we talk about? So many things. It's a really good show uh, and really, really useful stuff. Um, as something that I'm really curious about is how we navigate this world of probiotics. Is more, is more better or is less better? Is dietary intervention better? And we discuss all that stuff today. So I know you're going to love the show. Uh, and we're very lucky to have Jason here. It was one of those shows where by the end of it, I had an, another 30 questions I wanted to ask. So he shall be back in a couple of months for a part two. If you have any questions after listening to today's show, why don't you go to the show notes, which you can always find at lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast and then click on that show from all the tile options and then pop it in the comments of the show notes because then I can take that on board for when I invite Jason back um, and do a follow-up. Now, this week, again, we have the wonderful Goodness Me Box uh, as our sponsor this month, and they are a great food, healthy food sampling box delivery service, and you get sort of seven to ten uh, health products and samples to your door. So this could be anything from whole food based protein powders to uh, really handy snacks that don't have additives, no genetically modified ingredients and all that kind of stuff. None of that in there. Uh, and the box is $25 a month. If you want to shave on a uh, shave, if you want to save on shipping, you do a three or a six month subscription and they waive any shipping costs as well. They've actually also come out with a nut-free kids box, which is just $11.95 with free shipping, and uh, that can be incredibly useful for the school ages. Now, you know me and the low-tox life. We're always talking about moving from products to produce, uh, but then in the world of navigating products, busy parents, 
Sometimes it, it can be useful socially for our kids to look like they've got a couple of little packets in the mix sometimes so that they don't feel like their lunchbox is completely alien. But you want that stuff to be really good. And this is where Goodness Me Box is really helpful because they help you navigate that whole world for when you are choosing products, you want to make sure you're choosing the best ones. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so you've got $10 off Lotox life. 10 is your code head to the goodness me website, goodness me box website, or head to the show notes and click through with all the details confirmed there. I want to thank everybody who is joining the Lotox club. It's building slowly and wonderfully. And the conversations in there are fabulous. We are just about to kick off with our next little seven day power challenge. Last month, we had seven days of five cups of greens a day. People got some great results from that. Uh, and we are ready to do our next, this is, I probably shouldn't swear on my own show, so I won't, I'll just spell it out, but it's called the micro S H I T S challenge. Uh, no pun intended with, uh, today's, um, show talking about stool tests, but this is more about little things that you walk past a hundred times in your home or things in your life or, um, bill or a to-do or something that is taking up brain space that is annoying you that you haven't got round to or you haven't done. And for seven days, we do seven of those things that have just kind of piled up in our lives and in our homes. Uh, and it's, we did it just before Christmas and it's a really great thing to do to just free up brain space, feel accomplished, kick goals. Uh, and it's one that we bring back every few months in the club as one of our seven day power challenges. Cause it's, uh, it's, it's just so satisfying to get that stuff done. So if you want to join the club, you can always head over to the Patreon website, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. There are two tiers, the $4 tier and the $10 tier a month. The pricing is in US dollars and uh, $4 is basically just swapping out a coffee a month. It helps us cover the costs of the podcast and running the business and booking and researching our guests and, and getting everything organized. Hosting alone for a large website costs several hundred dollars a month. So it's really wonderful that you can support our work, but in the club, you get a whole bunch of perks, including 20% off all low tox life courses. We have six now and really, really great courses that can help you with your, your goals around sustainability and health. And you also have uh, all access to the chat group, the challenges. Uh, and what else do we do in there? Cool stuff. I just can't think of everything right now. <laughs> Typical. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a really beautiful space to be. And I really love the energy that we've created in there. So come join us either via the Patreon website directly by Googling it right now or um, by checking all the details out on the show notes. Look forward to seeing you there and enjoy today's show with Jason. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm great, Alex. How are you going today? I'm really, really good. And this is one of my favorite subjects. And I'm very, very excited to have you here because this has been an area that you have been researching, not only the gut um, microbiota, but also the vaginal microbiota. I know you did a great show with Joe Witten on that. Um, but kind of way before it's sort of become discussed in pop health culture, if you'd like. Uh, so I think to bring you on the show today uh, is, is going to be exceptional uh, information that we'll be sharing with people. And I would love to start 
a little bit of an icebreaker by asking you, what was your first favorite probiotic strain? Ooh, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I know going... you're not meant to have favorite kids, but you know. Yeah, I think I think I, I can answer this one truthfully <laughs> without hurting anybody else's feelings. Mm -hmm. So it would be Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. Ooh, um, that's a good and... mold one, having had mold illness. Ah, mm. yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's that's one of the reasons why is that it was perhaps the the poster child of of the proper way of developing probiotics from the the isolation stage through to the research stage and i think mm. that's perhaps why and that you know in terms of how it was, it was initially isolated i think it was they looked in the, the the gut of a healthy swedish person and they may have isolated i, I could be a little bit off with the numbers but they may have isolated about 100 different lactobacilli strains and they essentially put them through an obstacle course of which ones could survive gastric acid which ones could survive bile which ones could attach it to the to gut cells, which ones produced antimicrobial compounds that were selective and just killed off sort of the, the pathogens or bad guys and left the good guys alone, um, and which ones had a degree of shelf stability, so they, they would stay alive you know, outside the human gut for long enough to make a um, product out of. And essentially, out of that 100 that started with one, <laughs> came through wow. all that obstacles intact and had all the right criteria. And then the researchers were, were the two microbiota researchers, Golden and Gorbach. So that's where the GG comes from, from their, the, the first letters of their, their respective Oh, it's like an ode to the scientists who, who did that uh, paper. Amazing. Yeah, and then they obviously did heaps of animal studies, and then then uh, from that, from that point onwards, and then human clinical trials. So it, it is to, to to date the the best researched, uh, best clinically validated probiotic microbe on Earth. Um, wow! So it's still one of my my keen favorites that's dear to my heart in terms of my clinical practice. But it was certainly my my initial first probiotic love. Definitely. I can hear that in your voice. Like I can I, I can imagine you lighting up over there. <laughs> <laughs> and what fascinated you about this area of medicine in in the first place? Like what drew you to the microbiota? Yeah, I mean, I think I was lucky enough to have a, a lecture in the, the final year of my undergraduate clinical training um, talking about essentially intestinal permeability and, and dysbiosis, which were, were old naturopathic um, concepts that that hadn't been widely discussed in the conventional literature up to that point mm -hmm. so much i mean that's that things have changed dramatically in the last 20 years i can i can tell you but at that time they were they were really popular concepts in the naturopathic field and nutrition field but they weren't really talked about outside that area and and his lecture was just really really struck a chord with me like i want to be involved with this sort of research and, and furthering this field because it just it just something just rang write about it for me, um, even though I'm not someone that had gut complaints as a big part of my own health journey. Mm. Um, my, my weak area would actually arguably be, be my lungs, but not my gut. So it wasn't wasn't for that purpose. It's just something that just resonated well. And then I approached him right afterwards and said, hey, I want to do my honors degree in this area right when I finished studying. And he was open to that. And then that flowed on to my PhD. So essentially, I've been looking at, at uh, you know, the important role of gut microbiota, prebiotics, probiotics diet, and, and herbs, and what impact they have on that, that ecosystem back from the late 1990s. Wow. Um, and, and can you give us a bit of an idea as to how fast this area of research has grown in the past 20 years? crazily fast it's nuts isn't it yeah <laughs> it's, it's nuts like like i've looked at this just recently and, and we're not we're not but, but let's say i started back in 2000 when i was doing my, my literature review for my honors thesis and you could put in probiotic in one of the the main um medical repositories like medline and i think there's about 250 papers 
came up thereabouts mm-hmm. and you could read all 250 papers back back in the day and some of those were would have been irrelevant and not really, really um important to what the, the exact task you were doing but you do that same search now and there's you know for 2018 there's 3200 papers wow. so to give you an idea and, and same with microflora or microbiota we called it microflora back then there's about 800 papers published in the year 2000 versus 12,000 and mm. more in 2018 so it has absolutely boomed yeah and i mean you know that idea that like in pop health culture we tend to jump on bandwagons and go hype before analysis how does one who is a clinician avoid that kind of attempt because it'd be so like as you said there are so many research papers now how do you actually separate the hype from the good stuff in the research ah i mean this can be to be definitely challenging for in the health field because mm. as someone that's been a clinician for for over ni- 19 years now you see fads yeah <laughs> come and, you go. Would. and some of those ones don't have much evidence behind them they just have a strong personality behind them yeah um, a good story to tell right yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and i suppose i find it interesting because i've been in this area for so long that you hear of people going oh the microbiome is so new and i'm like no, it's not. <laughs> your familiarity with it might be new, yeah. and your understanding of it may be really limited, and which is why you think it's it's so underdeveloped. But there's a tremendous amount of research there, so I, I don't think this is one of those um, quick fads that's going to just boom up and boom down. I think it's just going to boom, boom, boom from mm-hmm. this point onwards because there's so many research teams looking at this now. Compared, compared to back when I started, there was a handful of microbiota research teams around the world looking at these these areas, whereas now there are be thousands of researchers yeah. around the world looking at these areas and would you say that that increase in research the increase in awareness of uh how uh, delicate our little inner gardens are if you like uh would have started to impact the conversations we're now seeing in conventional medicine about holding back on antibiotics unless it's absolutely necessary yeah yeah it's, it's been phenomenal to see that that change that, i've found you know, it amazing just seeing my son have a a random bonus tooth he had, unfortunately. We had to get it taken out. I had a daughter um, with one of those too. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, as you start talking, you realize there's a whole bunch of people out there that have got these bonus teeth. But uh, I, I didn't want him, you know, having issues in his teenage years, so we got it taken out. I was really impressed that they weren't just given a routine slap of antibiotics at the end. Said, if you get a fever, just let us know. We might look at it at that point, but, you know, there's absolutely no need for them at this point. And I was like, yes, this is fantastic. We're getting somewhere. Yeah, because you, you go back to the early days, and, and this, these were concepts were, were definitely brought up, you know, definitely in naturopathic medicine circles, no doubt. But in the microbiota researcher circles, they were certainly talking about we need to minimize the damage to this ecosystem. It's actually vitally important to human mm-hmm. health, but that was not a, a concept that was taken on board by the broader um, community at that time point. And one of the turning points for me is where there was a a study published looking at uh, comparing antibiotics and probiotics for the, for the prevention of recurrent urinary tract infections. And I think it was 2012. It was published in one of those majorly huge medical journals like The Lancet. <clears throat> and there's an editorial that went along with it. And, and for the first time in that sort of mainstream medical journal, they were saying, well, the probiotics were probably as efficacious as, as antibiotics, maybe slightly less. But what they didn't do is cause collateral damage to the ecosystem. This mm. is important, and which is why they might be better suited for this condition. It's like, whoa, that was revolutionary to get that concept out there into that broader idea. Because certainly people talked about 
prevention of antibiotic resistant microbes. That's been yeah. talked about for a long time, but people weren't talking about the, the implications of damaging your microbiome on, on later health. And that's when the tide really turned. And sadly, there, there are still many situations where antibiotics are overprescribed. And we know that in the right place and the right time, they are life-saving, limb-saving, and there's no doubt about it. But we also have, I mean, there's a study done in Medical Journal of Australia, published 2017, looking at viral bronchitis episodes. And I still think that the data suggested that 80% of people with viral bronchitis episodes where antibiotic in theory can't even work were being prescribed antibiotics. So I think there's still a long way to go. But when I hear stories like yours, it's very, very heartening. As, as, as a lover of the gut microbiome, mm. it's, it's so important that this message gets out there and that we understand the ramifications of, of what we're prescribing. Whereas you go back 20 years and People were prescribing antibiotics more like more like candy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know because I grew up like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not really a big deal. Whereas now we know, hey, that antibiotic course may alter your gut ecosystem for six months or mm. twelve months or two years or sometimes if they take a combination of antibiotics, your ecosystem is permanently altered. Mm. And do we know the ramifications of that? The consequences of permanently altering your ecosystem? Well, no, we don't at this yeah. time point. But I think in the next 20, 30 years. Will be teasing out the ramifications of our overuse and overprescription of antibiotics in the you know 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Mm. I mean, it's sort of becoming painfully obvious in our new generation of kids, really, isn't it? I would say so. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that I do when I start a talk uh, is I say, okay, let's think about when we were at school. Let's think about trying to remember more than one kid who had asthma, dermatitis, psoriasis. Uh, food allergies or um, eczema and one or two hands go up and then I say let's think about ask kids at school now the last birthday party you had to cater for or the last uh, the last time <laughs> you were having a the birthday party yeah the last time you're having a chat with some parents over a coffee and someone was to oh yeah you know little Jimmy's eczema's flared up and oh yeah I've got to go get another Ventolin puffer for Amber and, you know like and the whole room's hands go up when I ask them to identify more than five kids that they know so there's a there's a lot that we have to answer for with um with our blindness to the impact of antibiotics. But as I I, I totally agree with you, used in life saving. That's what they were invented for to save lives. Yeah, and, and if we keep mm. them for that those applications where they save lives, they save limbs. Yes. Then then we'll have use of them for the next twenty, thirty, forty years plus. Yeah. Um, but when they're being um, overprescribed, that's where we have have the, the double whammy of, of increased antibiotic resistance, which means that they're not going to work when we really need them. Mm. And then we get the damage to the microbiota. And I think you're right. For, for me, there's there's a lot of data showing the increased risk for a whole range of diseases associated with, with over-antibiotic use and, broadly speaking, just changes to the, the gut microbiome. And the reality is, if you're out there communicating with other people, you see what's changed in terms yeah. of what diseases are making themselves manifest now compared to you're right, 30, 40, 50 years ago. You do. And then, so it kind of leads me to the next question. Like there are, obviously we kind of know we need to be pumping up our good guys in our guts, uh, but it almost feels like the, the, the science is too hard to understand as to how we can accurately uh, and bio-individually do that effectively and we just jump on these bandwagons and the more probiotics, the better and the higher the colonies, the better and the bit, you know, like it just yeah. feels like we're going a bit too fast into, yay, give me all the probiotics. Like how do we navigate this world where we know we want a flourishing ecosystem in our guts 
but we don't, and often our clinicians don't, have enough information and aren't deep enough in the research to personalise that uh, experience and that rehab that we so many of us need. Yeah, that's it's a huge challenge for mm. clinicians. It's a huge, even bigger challenge, I'd say, for the, the general public. Um, I mean, I, I can say from a, a microbiota researcher perspective, in terms of what the research is saying, uh, in term, I mean, there are definite times where I mean, I use probiotics all the time in mm. practice. But when we're talking about optimizing the gut microbiome, the the vast majority of research is really focused on, and the, and the best results we actually see, and I can say this as a clinician as well, is is by using cha- making changes to diet and by using substances like prebiotics. Yeah, These okay. induce gigantic shifts in the ecosystem far more than taking a capsule that might contain 12 strains and 150 billion CFU, um, but all those strains are generally within two different genera: Lactobacillus and Bifidobacteria. Mm-hmm. And and they, whilst they they do play those genera do play key roles in the gut. They're they're two out of you know potentially seventy or eighty different genera, and then that they're often play much more substantial roles. And we know from from decades of research now that the administration of, of probiotics to um, let's say generally healthy people has has a pretty minimal impact on on the gut ecosystem composition. Whereas we change their diet, we get them to eat more fiber, more resistant starches, more oligosaccharides, or we get them to have more prebiotics. The changes are huge, right? Absolutely huge. And so, in that, we—I mean—we've seen this crazy proliferation of uh, FODMAP-affected people. Uh, is it because we didn't eat great fiber through the '80s and '90s, or we eating like our tip-top breads and all that kind of horrible stuff? And then you try and like you start to get gut issues, you're in your 30s and then you go, great, now I need heaps of fiber. I'm go- I know what to eat now. I'm going to load myself up with all these good chickpeas and, mm. and, uh, and all these uh, wonderful prebiotic foods. But it, can it be too much too soon? Do we almost need to uh, edge our way back into fiber? Yes, mm. <laughs> because if you, if you go from eating the standard Australian diet yeah. to having a lot more you know, legumes and whole grains, etc., then you're going to get a lot more gas-related symptoms. And if your gut is functioning well and, and the level of inflammation is, is low or minimal, um, you'll just fart more. Yeah. You know, and that that is socially uncomfortable. Yes, <laughs> but it's not physically uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and and you, t- you your gut adapts to the greater amount of gas being produced. There's microbes there that, that help deal metabolize that gas into something else. Okay. Um, and when all's going well, then then that shifts over a period of, of a week, you can get some pretty dramatic um, alterations to your gas output from even when you start, start start eating those legumes, for example, and lots of onions and garlic if you hadn't for a long time. Mm. The problem comes is that we have people that, and I think this is probably a few different issues here but certainly there can be issues with with gut transit time um which means that the gas that is produced in that situation just gets stuck and doesn't move through mm. we can have issues with and this is very common in patients who present with you know the label irritable bowel syndrome but they have a uh, underlying cause which is visceral hypersensitivity is a medical term for it essentially it's, it's nerves in the gut that are hypersensitive to to stimuli like gas and in in you know, medical um, research, they, they, they investigate this by putting these special balloons up your butt and they pump up these balloons. That <laughs> sounds so and fun. It does, doesn't it? And <laughs> you don't do this in clinics, thankfully. I always tell my patients this, so I'm not going to do this to you, but this is what they, <laughs> they do in research settings. Is they And, and these people with visceral hypersensitivity, they, they get pain and discomfort when the balloon is like maybe a quarter full, whereas your typical person when it's like all the way full. 
So right. we know that the nerves are just hypersensitive to, to stretch. Mm-hmm. So they aren't necessarily producing more gas than anybody else, but they feel like they are, and they feel that small amount of gas being being produced. And so it, that's essentially caused by low-grade inflammation, and there can be a number of causes of that. We know that you know getting a traveler's diarrhea, food poisoning can cause this. We know that uh, taking antibiotics can actually cause this. Right. Yeah. Um, and then thirdly, there's there, for, for some of those people that have sort of major gas-related issues when they increase the fiber content, they can have things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Mm. as an underlying issue too, which were you, you, they have legumes and then you know, half an hour later their, their tummy bloats up like crazy. Um, they go on a low FODMAP diet or something like that and they don't get that symptom anymore, but it's not like the legume is causing. <laughs> yeah, so this is the issue, the right? Because underlying issue with your gut. Mm. And if you fix these underlying issues with your gut, you can tolerate those foods again. Um, this, in some cases, that's easier said than done. But in, in many patients, before they've, they've gone too far down uh, the path of um, ecosystem destruction yeah. and, and, and inflammation in the gut, it's actually quite reversible. Amazing. And so because yeah, this is something that I, I grapple with in our community, you know, you see a lot of people talking about how they've eliminated like practically three quarters of their diet and a lot of good foods in there. Yep. That's uh, right. I've got no it, troubles with people saying yeah. cutting up McDonald's for the rest of their lives. Great. <laughs> cutting up soft drinks for the rest of their life. Great. But when you're saying I'm never going to eat fruit or <laughs> whole grains or legumes again for the rest of my life because they cause your gut symptoms, then it's blaming the food, a healthy food that has a range of health benefits for, because your, your, your gut is actually in disarray. And if we focus on that, that disarray in your gut, we can generally get people back to eating those healthy foods again. Amazing. And so can you just share the, in, an insight into a couple of really big things that tend to move the needle for people who, have, who are in this, I've eliminated practically everything category because they're so frustrated. It's so socially hard as well. It's not like they want yeah. to do that. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 I feel like there's a psychological component of fear around healthy food as well, which can be detrimental too. So it's there's, you know, food fear and there's the actual physiological impact of eating those foods and we want to reintroduce them, but how? Yeah, and sometimes it takes a bit of testing to, to work that out. Um, and that can be microbiome assessment. That can be, you know, breath testing for the presence of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And and once we get a better idea of why you're reacting to those foods, then we can actually tailor treatment more more specifically. So it's hard to give a a, a broad one one thing will work for everybody scenario because that's not really the case. And and I think it also depends on how long you've been on those really restricted diets and what other treatments you, you you've. Um, played with as well in terms of herbal antimicrobials, in terms of antibiotics, because those things, um, my experience has been um, that the, the, the longer you've been on those sort of diets and the more of sort of microbiome annihilation, mm. <laughs> extermination approach that you've taken, the harder it is to get you back to, yeah. to a healthier state. Um, and I wish it wasn't that way, but that, I can say that that's clearly the case from my clinical experience. Whereas if you get them much earlier on in the piece, when things just first start going wrong, it's a much quicker process to get yeah. them back on track. Yeah, okay. Uh, and so so for someone listening today who's in that that bucket where like even looking at a chickpea makes their stomach blow up, uh, yeah. what would be the first step they should take? What clinicians should they see? What tests should they maybe ask for? Well, I mean, I, I would suggest seeing a, a naturopathic practitioner who mm-hmm. is experienced dealing with things like irritable bowel syndrome, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Because yeah. th- those those are the things that that they need to have on the radar, and they need to be able to do, to interpret t- 
breath tests and you'd be able to interpret microbiome um, tests as well to help guide your your treatment approach because I, I do think that uh, microbiota imbalance is is a is a key driver and and um, sometimes initiator for situations like this too so mm-hmm. even if if we deal with the in some patients you can deal with the SIBO but if you leave the the colon ecosystem disrupted it's not actually going to to often fix the, some of the issues you're having with food is just that the the way you experience that issue, the timing of that issue might be different. Yeah, gotcha. And uh, that just leads me so perfectly into talking about poop tests. Um, so is a poop test, stool test, just a snapshot in time or is it really an accu- accurate representation of what's going on inside? Um, because, you know, some of these cost four or $500 and that can really sway someone as to whether or not they're going to go down that road, uh, given we have to pay for these things privately in this day and age, which is crazy, yeah. but that's a whole that, other conversation. That will change as there's greater acceptance of, yes. the, of and understanding of the importance of the microbiota. Like we'll start doing um, routine vaginal microbiome assessment, routine gut microbiome assessments on, on all of our patients, mm. and that will happen whether it's 20 years from now in Australia or shorter, but it will happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose taking a, a, a step back, there's probably th- three different type of technologies that can be used for stool analyses. And mm-hmm. I think it's important to understand the, the pros and cons of these. Yeah, awesome. Um, in terms of the stool tests uh, that are available, there's some that use a technology called 16SRRNA. Um, 16SRRNA, yes. <laughs> not, mm-hmm. not necessarily a catchy name, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of bacterial DNA that they look at. And, and all bacteria have got this this same um, gene present. So what we can do, but, it, but it's ch- each genus of bacteria has a different code. So essentially what they do is when they get a poo sample, they, they take out the poo bits, they take out the human DNA and just try to, to grab that 16S bit of, of DNA. And they can look at the code, because it might go, you know, 0157, and they can look at their library and go, oh, 0157 we know belongs to Bacteroides or it belongs to Bifidobacteria. And they can look at the amount that's there going, okay, well, 20% of the, of the bacterial DNA is this same code. So that from, from that, we can actually work out what, what genera are present with very good detail. Mm-hmm. And and the the benefit of this is is essentially when we, when you void the, the stool, you can you put it into a solution that essentially kills everything right then and there. Um, so there's no sort of changes in populations when it get, makes its way to the lab, for example. And we can see a bunch of microbes that we didn't even know existed 20, 30, 40 years ago, or even five years ago. Some of these mm. microbes don't even have a name yet. There's a whole bunch of species. We'd have no idea what role they play in the gut, but we can see that they're there now. Wow. And that's, that's the first step. Yeah. You know, so when I'm looking at a microbiome analysis, there might be you know 80 genera present. Um, and we might know what you know, 15 of those do <laughs> in good and bad ways. And there's you know, maybe 60 of those that we actually don't know at this time point what role they play. Um, but in 15 years time, we probably will. Isn't I mean, that amazing? Is, so you're looking yeah. under a microscope, like how does a scientist know which one to name? Like what one, what, what makes them special enough to get a name before another guy? Well, that's a good question because there's still some <laughs> microbes that aren't named. There's yeah. like this one that I see in the literature again and again called SS2 slash one. And I'm like, Surely you can name it by now. It's mm. been like five years calling SS2-1. I think you can give it a name. And, and many of these, these microbes are named after 
the, the people that first discovered them too, like Blotia, who is named after Blot, and Aldercrutia, who is named after Aldercrutia, etc. So it's pretty common the microbiology. So you can you can be become like famous for all time if you can find a new species and name it after yourself, which is pretty cool in some ways. Is the race on? Is this on your bucket list? <laughs> it's not. It's not necessarily on my bucket list. Um, but you know, I wouldn't mind a microbe being named Horolacii because I think it's got a pretty cool sounding flow to it. But I don't think it's going to happen. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the advantage of the 16s RNA is we can we can see microbes that are there present that we we can't grow and we didn't know existed mm-hmm. before. And I suppose that that probably leads in well to the the old techniques of microbiology, which which is called culturing, where we actually had to get a live microbe and try to grow it in a petri dish. Yeah. And we we now know that maybe one third of the species in your gut we can actually do this with so we had a very limited idea of what was what was in your gut up until the essentially early 2000s when we changed technology to start using 16s or mm-hmm. rna and that and that this is partly why the, the the microbiome area has boomed is because we the technology can now actually see what's there <laughs> we, we couldn't very see very well what was there before um, and you'll still find that some of the stool tests or microbiota assessments that that clinicians have access to are still based on culturing so -hmm. you can still pay you know four or five hundred dollars for a culture-based test that tells you in many cases very little about what's actually there Mm -hmm. sometimes i might look at four different species and like really you can't really see much tell much when you get some help from looking at four species you really need to or four genera you need to look at a much bigger picture so so 16s rna does that and perhaps the the new kid on the block but that it's arguably the gold standard now is a technique called metagenomic sequencing. Wow. And, and who's this, doing that? Uh, there's a lab in Australia called Microba. Ah, that, yes. That, that mm-hmm. does this. And they're you know, relatively new new because the technology is new. So it's being commercialized and, and you know, the, the price is pretty comparable to some of the labs using culturing, but you get a much more a better picture and a more accurate picture of what's actually there mm-hmm. um, and the nice thing about genomic sequencing is they can look at fungi DNA and also protozoal DNA too not just bacteria so mm-hmm. they can look at bacteria fungi and protozoal and they can look at uh, metabolic pathways so they can go oh you're very good at producing this anti-inflammatory compound or oh your ecosystem is, is is good at producing these B vitamins so they can take it uh, sort of a, a step further which I think is, is exciting you know so for me there, I wouldn't ever use culturing to get a picture of the ecosystem health. I would use 16s RNA, definitely labs that use that, and I'd use metagenomic sequencing, definitely. But yeah. I, you know, I, I would avoid culturing for this. We're still culturing is useful if you're wanting to grow a pathogen and see expose it to different antibiotics and see what 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 kills it. Mm. Culturing is always going to play a role in microbiology, but it just doesn't tell us what's going on in your gut. Right. So would culturing be the standard one that we get through a GP to find out whether there's a big nasty guy in our gut right now? Uh, These days they've tended to move to using bits of DNA. So they'll do like a a fecal multiplex PCR, which will look for a range of pathogens from looking for for bits of DNA. Mm -hmm. So so I, I think that's already shifted. It's just that some of those like comprehensive digestive stool analyses that that um some are more sort of integrated practitioners and naturopathic practitioners have been using for for you know 15 20 years they're still available um and there might be some aspects of the tests that i still think are valuable but not the the culturing component mm-hmm. you know it tells us too little about what's what's actually there um and there's there's problems with you know getting the sample from from your house to the lab that that i've seen firsthand of people who live in darwin or in yeah. brisbane 
the by the time the the micros the sample gets to the lab in Melbourne, for example, they're they're dead mm. <laughs> because they haven't handled the forty degree heat in Darwin in the truck in the airplane. Yeah, whereas we don't have to worry about that so much with with the newer technology because we don't need alive bugs to actually assess the ecosystem because we're we're looking at the DNA. Uh, um, and the proportion of DNA to get an idea of what proportion of the ecosystem they inhabit. Right, gotcha. And so when we get a stool test back uh, and you see, let's just say someone has a whole bunch of lactobacilli and like virtually no bifidobacteria, would you then treat with a combat, because you seem to be super... um, keen on food as playing a very key role in this would you treat with a combination of probiotics and food in that case yeah good question and i think one of the the basic premises we really have to get our head around here is that uh probiotics from 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 the from the um genus of lactobacillus or bifidobacteria that make up the bulk of our succulents in the vast majority of cases do not stick in your gut. You can't reseed or recolonize with mm. probiotic supplements or these fer- or fermented foods. So you can't go, oh, look, you're you don't have any lactobacilli. Here, eat this sauerkraut, and it's going to start growing in your gut permanently. It right. doesn't happen. Okay. I wish it was as simple as that. But we've got 40 years of research telling it's not. If it sticks around, if that if that administered strain sticks around for one or two weeks afterwards, it's considered to be a very good strain, and the vast vast majority are passed straight out within you know 24 hours or was it depending on your gut transit time but they, they pass straight through without making up even temporary residence wow so is that why you can have a stool test where you don't see these guys well you could have let's look at bifidobacteria for mm. example that in the arguably in healthy people that might make up two to five percent of that ecosystem composition mm-hmm. um, but if you've been on a you know very restricted diet like a, let's say a ketogenic type diet um and let's say you've taken some antibiotics on top of that, you may well have made that species go extinct, that wow. genus go extinct for your ecosystem. So you've killed off your indigenous populations, and you can't just take a supplement and have it regrow. No, it'll stay there for a little while while you take it, and and, and you can see this clearly on a test. If they're eating like the right right yogurt or something, it will show up on the stool test while they're having it, but two weeks later it's gone. Um, and I think it's that 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 permanence of, of potential changes we make to the ecosystem that, that really need for me is a message I really want to get out there because it, it changes the way that you look at damaging that gut. It's like, what I do to this is actually potentially permanent. If I make a species extinct, it's not easy to get it back. I mean, I think there's fecal transplants is probably a way of getting some of these things back, but there, you know, it takes a certain severity of disease state or a mindset for people to go down the fecal transplant route mm. rather rather than take a, a, a pop a pill from the refrigerator yeah. um and and just the reality is is that very very few you know i could say probably one in a, a thousand probiotic strains that actually has evidence of, of long-term colonization mm-hmm. so we can't rely on that so if, if i have a patient who presents with with you know apparently no bifidobacteria and i always make the assumption that it's actually below detectable levels or below detectable threshold because all tech you know technology we use will have a level below which there are microbes present but we can't see them because the population is so small so i always run under the assumption that if i specifically target and feed that species then when i do a follow-up test in a couple months time it hopefully will come back up to the point where we can see it Mm-hmm. And then another couple months of, of targeted feeding, it'll be at a healthy population again. And and, and I can say probably eight, from my clinical experience, about 80% of patients who present with you know below detectable levels or apparently none of bifidobacteria 
um, after putting a lot of effort in by changing the diet and using prebiotic um, supplements that it's, it's on the radar by two months and by four months is in a lovely healthy population again. Um, but in 20% of those people, it's actually extinct. And in that case, you might think about, okay, are there other bacteria in the gut that can do the same sort of functional roles as bifidobacteria? And I would argue that that's probably not the case. Mm. <laughs> they, they might be people that need to take a, a bifidobacteria-containing supplement, you know, regularly, whether it's every two or three days or daily, to sort of get the benefit of having that that genus in their gut because they currently don't. Um, right. So even if they're extinct, uh, you can still kind of um, like get them in their airbnb doing some good stuff while they're around and then yes. getting on their way. That's right. But you just have to go, okay, right, well, I have to take these regularly mm. to get that benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then this might, might, who knows, it might change in that that some of the, you know, there's one bifidobacteria strain, I think it's called the AH217 strain, um, stuck around in 30% of people for six months. Yeah, oh, but wow. it's not it's not commercially available now. They haven't but even that, given it a proper name yet. Oh, that is its proper name. Oh, okay. It's, 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 I think it's a bifidobacterium. I think it was lactis AH two one zero six or something like that. So the two two H is the strain designation, which 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 means it's got its its full proper name. Um, and that strains like that might be commercialized, and we might have that capacity, and they might stick around for some people, but but not others. So that might change. But certainly, the the, the current generation probiotics we know generally don't stick around for more mm-hmm. than a week or two. But at best. But it sounds like, given the state of our guts in general, it's still worth exploring and potentially taking some under the guidance of practitioner. Yeah, who can who can choose the best one to try to cover that what you might be lacking? But as I said, going going back, that that thankfully. I do find that in the majority of patients, if we if they make the right dietary changes and they take the prebiotics, the populations do come back. And it, it's similar with lactobacilli. It's just that lactobacilli make up a very small neat part of the ecosystem. The vast majority of patients, like they're they're pre- they're at like zero point zero one or zero point zero two percent of that ecosystem. And healthy people is, is made up of lactobacilli. So it's. Um, you know, arguably less less pivotal role than 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 bifidobacteria, but it's also a at a spot where it can bounce around that below detectable threshold pretty easily with lactobacilli. Mm, interesting. And something you kind of you mentioned really briefly, and I don't want to skim over it because I know a lot of people uh, are trialing or doing the ketogenic diet. Um, was that in a, in someone who'd done a ketogenic diet for a long time, but you added antibiotics. So I just wanted to m- see whether the ketogenic diet alone was a factor in potentially uh, affecting yeah. the bifidobacteria, <laughs> just, just because is. I definitely don't want people thinking, oh, it must be the antibiotics then. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to yeah, clear no, this one no. up. Thanks for, for teasing that. I, I think it can be exaggerated if you're doing some of the, like a low, a very low carb diet or mm-hmm. a ketogenic diet and then take herbal antimicrobials that, that impact bifidobacteria or anti- antibiotics because I think it, their populations are already tittering on the brink mm-hmm. and it doesn't take much to t- push them over the cliff in that case. Um, but we do have clear data showing that sort of uh, – Low, low carb diets and ketogenic diets do have um, detrimental impacts on certain population, beneficial bacteria populations in the gut, and that would certainly include bifidobacteria, and it would include your a whole range of species that are um, butyrate producing bacteria. And and butyrate is like one of the most fantastic substances that your gut bacteria produce for you. Mm. But when we go on those dietary approaches, we actually starve those species off. In the short term, they populations go down you don't get the benefit of what they're doing but they're still there but you do a long enough um 
they just die out off and then then if you want to fi- fix it up it's not easy at that point because they're they're gone um mm. yeah so i think it's important that we're more aware of it and do you know there, there might be times and places of doing things like a ketogenic diet but i think you can supplement with prebiotic at the same time as that to try to offset that for example you can gotcha. do regular microbiota assessments to see what impact is actually having on you in your gut ecosystem um, yeah as well and then it's it's also for me it's putting time durations of things too because you follow some of those diets long enough and that's where the, the impact is permanent versus if the species is present at 0.01 percent you can bring it back to a healthy level if you can do the right dietary changes take the right prebiotics but if it's extinct it's it's not easy to bring back and that's where the duration of time that some of these diets are followed um plays a role gotcha and and what do you see clinically as being a a duration of time where it does become negatively impacting um or does it really depend on the person it would depend on the person because there's so much when it comes to microbiota composition that that goes back to you know the seeding from your mum, how healthy your mum the ecosystem was whether you were born vaginally whether you were you were breastfed or not your early antibiotic usage um that that determines you know really what what you got to start with when you move into adult mm-hmm. childhood and adult life and then the impact of diet is always going to be more extreme when your your ecosystem is already pretty um, altered because of those early factors that are you know beyond your control you don't you can't control what um you know, medical interventions your mom had um and obviously some of those things like c-sections save birth save lives as well for the mom saved my life me. yeah and saved yeah, my exactly. son and uh, me again twice it saved my life interestingly as the yeah. baby and as the mom yeah yeah that's right but there are repercussions to of that, course that, that it's slowly being being teased out about an increased disease risk but it's about that that seeding um of the next generation that is altered in that that experience um that which means I think that the ecosystem can be more easily bumped off um, and the species might be there in a much smaller smaller capacity than what they would be if they were you know, born vaginally and, and breastfed for two years, etc. Um, that, that established and didn't take antibiotics under two years of age where that ecosystem can be very, very much um, impacted because the, going a bit of a tangent, but the ecosystem in, in kids under two is far more simple and and dominated by a few big players and a, a lot and there's a lot of species that are present in teeny tiny amounts and sadly it's very easy to kill off species in teeny tiny amounts with a, with some antibiotics than it is when they make a five percent ecosystem much easier to wipe them out completely when they're back at 0.01 percent of that ecosystem and that's the issue with that population is is that there are a lot of species there in tiny amounts and it's a, and, and of course antibiotics can completely wipe out that species which means it's not there later on when you know diet becomes more complex and the ecosystem is supposed to morph into a more complex adult human state Mm, so fascinating uh and so to the um mum out there who uh who is hearing this information for the first time maybe she had to have a caesar like i did maybe her kid had to be bottle fed because there just was no breast milk to be found um you know all these sorts of things that uh that happen where we're so grateful for the modern medical system because we get to continue on living yeah. uh, which literally 100 years ago we would not have been able to yep. um what are for you the best things those people affected in those ways can uh lead their healthiest lives yeah so it's it's not 
easy to, to add to that sort of diversity and the richness of that ecosystem without mm. essentially fecal exposure or fecal transplants is really the only way of introducing new species back in yeah. um, currently. And there are researchers developing you know, novel probiotics that they call like poo, poo pills without the poo. Mm. Um, other researchers developing actual poo pills <laughs> to try to, to find easier ways of introducing a more complex ecosystem back into a environment that that is, is was limited in terms of its seeding. So I think there's more options in the future that we can look forward to. Um, but I think in the here and now, it's it's about ways of choosing a diet and lifestyle that that optimizes the capacity of your ecosystem to be diverse. Mm. And and that includes eating you know a lot of, of whole whole plant foods. Mm -hmm. You know the, the the data tells you that the more um, different the, the greater variety of whole plant foods that you eat on a weekly basis essentially the more diverse your ecosystem is awesome yeah so that that to me is always one of those those key key recommendations um getting adequate amount you know moderate amounts of exercise too little exercise and too much are considered with or associated with lowered diversity scores in the gut um, getting adequate amounts of sleep you know so some of it comes and and maintaining healthy stress levels so a lot of that comes back to general healthy lifestyle principles and, and avoiding you know um food chemicals and that would include things like artificial sweeteners it would include uh food chemical emulsifiers that are you know commonly used in ice cream and a whole bunch of other 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 foods that we know now have a you know damaging effect on gut ecosystems and and strip away the protective gut lining um as well as other sort of environmental chemicals that, that i'm sure that your, your listeners are more yeah, than up, yeah, up on they sure that, are we're now actually seeing that they have detrimental impacts on on the gut ecosystem that were you know not considered you know 15 20 30 40 years ago when these chemicals were brought to market no one was looking at impact on gut bacteria it wasn't part of the thinking mm. yeah it wouldn't have been part of the danger testing it, it feels no. to me like chemical danger has commonly either been about lung eye or skin irritation or damage um and not so much about uh internal microbiota damage uh no, and, they're, and they're just yeah. starting to tease out some of the impact of these these chemicals environmental and food on the microbiota now and it's scary mm. <laughs> and, and, and it's good i mean as someone that i mean i uh, you know i suppose i'd see that i've been living a sort of whole food natural sort of life since the early 90s so for me it's like oh, i don't eat i haven't eaten those things for 20 years it's fine but yeah you just but i see patients who do and you and i walk down my supermarket and I see what people are eating, and it's like you're you're exposing that gut ecosystem to so many things that are causing you you damage and harm, but you don't know it, you know. Mm. And, and and we're allowed to do it at this time point, and that will change too. You know, every ten years we ban something that we thought was safe before. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, you know, I think the thing that makes me sad is that those those situations where you see the trolleys being filled up with this stuff, the they're not heading to a naturopath. To when they have a complaint, they head to a clinician who doesn't have deep knowledge of the microbiota, so they can't even be supported in the way that they need from having eaten that way, uh, unless they have a friend who says, hey, you know, like it happened to me, um, maybe you need to see a naturopath, and that changed my life. So um, I think it's, yeah. it's really, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's important that we... Um, we change that. I'm excited that it's changing. Uh, I don't want to get too sad about that. It's something that I think, like, I always want, like, two hours to myself to write a piece to help more people when, when that particular topic comes up because it really, really pains me right, very deep in my heart when I see a trolley full of weirdness. 
And I just, yeah. I don't judge the person. I just feel desperately sorry that we're in a situation where that person thinks that that's what's going to be a great thing to fill their fridge and pantry up with. Yeah, because it's often, it's not like they're choosing us knowing that it's going to cause them harm. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ignorance of the fact it's causing them harm in many cases. Yeah. And cultured food actually is something that a lot of people are confused about. Wild cultured versus uh, intentionally culturing with capsules or a particular starter culture. Uh, can you help us navigate this very trendy, exciting, popular sort of food at the moment so that we do it as best we should? Because yeah. something I, I find interesting is when I tried to make a sourdough starter in the building I lived in for eight years, which was water damaged and made me very sick. Um, I remember lifting the lid to, like they said, to smell it and you'll know when it smells sour that it'll be ready to go. I lifted the lid and I smelled it and I proceeded to get four days worth of hay fever. I've never had hay fever in my life before wow. that time. Uh, and then a bout of chronic sinusitis infections uh, over the following year. And I'm convinced that it was the wild yeasts and molds in that particular building that were had infiltrated my my first attempt at sourdough starter. Needless to say, I was completely starred, scarred by the experience. I haven't bought or made bread since. Um, yep. But <laughs> but I, it, it kind of made me start to wonder, like, should you really be thinking about the environment, the health of the environment you're in, if you go down the wild culturing road? That's. I mean, I, it's it's not something that I've actually thought much about. To be to be honest, um, okay. but when you hear stories like that, it's like it's <laughs> it totally clicks because yeah. you're you're going to have those mold spores. They're floating around everywhere, mm. and they'll start growing in there, and that will you might well be creating an ideal situation for it. And, and even if you're ingesting that mold that you're reactive to, when in a baked bread, for example, it still might be contributing to, to causing problems. So I, I think that is something that's probably rarely considered, but needs to be more in terms of what what that environment is actually like and where those natural things that we, you know, culturing agents might be, be coming from. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I used to be a, a avid sourdough maker, you know, a couple of decades ago when I felt like I had more time and <laughs> less, less kids. <laughs> <laughs> How many kids do you have? Uh, three. Yeah, that'd keep you busy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and it's certainly I've made my own sort of sourdough starter and then I'd keep regrowing it and regrowing, et cetera. And I, and I didn't have a moldy environment, so I think that was, was absolutely fine. Mm. Um, but, but I think it, it brings up broader questions around um, wild ferments versus controlled probiotics, for example, where I mean, I think that the name suggests they are wild. So you don't mm. actually know get what, what you're getting in that. And I mean, I eat you know, sauerkraut and kimchi for breakfast most days that are, that are a wild ferment. You know, mm -hmm. so um, I'm not opposed to them at all. It's just that, that I suppose for me as a clinician, I, I, the biggest difference is I don't rely on wild ferments as, as therapy tools in the same way that I would with a, uh, a probiotic supplement that contains, you know, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG mm. that I, I know from research the exact attributes that this strain has and how I can use them in my clinical practice. Whereas we know that that with sauerkraut or kimchi, for example, the, the dominant fermenting species at the end will be a, a strain of lactobacillus plantarum. But what we don't know is whether that, that strain that's in your ferment can survive gastric acid, mm. stomach acid. Can it survive bile exposure? Does it attach to your, your gut cells? Does it pass straight through? Does it produce antimicrobial compounds? And if it does, are they selective? Does it just kill off, you know, um, 
potential pathogens or disease-causing agents, or does it kill off good guys that are in, in your gut? Because mm. it's, it's, there are lactobacilli that do to do that, and and let, let alone the fact that it may interact with your immune system in a certain way. So I think there's a lot of unknowns about those fermented foods, which for me mean that I don't, wouldn't rely on them as a as a therapeutic tool. But I still encourage patients to be involved because I think there's something healing about making a a being part, an active part of your healing process. And I think there are other compounds in those fermented foods like sauerkraut and kimchi that um, can promote gut healing, mm. for example, you know, things like polyamines. Um, and that there might, well, and there's often contain antifungal compounds in them too, because they're often competing against yeast and molds for that cabbage in that case so they're yeah. fighting off that cabbage by secreting some antifungal compounds um so you're getting that aspect of it the the, the lactic acid in there is an acetic acid that might be in there too um, can lower the glycemic index of a of that food and anything you eat with it you know so i think there those are three just very very basic things of, of benefits we get from having the, the sauerkraut or kimchi that are independent of of the therapeutic qualities of the strains that are contained therein gotcha so great to eat really amazing uh foods consider controlled fermentation methods if you think you might be in a dodgy building or uh well, if you're yeah and, and if you're after a a specific therapeutic um strain so mm. I, i've got colleagues who make their, their ginger beer but they use the uh, saccharomyces cerveaceae variety bilardi um which people often call saccharomyces bilardi as as they're starting culture oh wow so yeah, it's like so, literally an anti-food poisoning ginger beer yeah yeah so when they're drinking <laughs> it they're getting a therapeutic dose of that specific strain yeah you know? and i thought that's a very clever way of actually using because it has to be fermented by some saccharomyces let's use the therapeutic one and mm. give it a very head start so that's what's going to be in there and you you can attempt to do that with with ferments too and we do it with yogurt all the time um but with sauerkraut or kimchi you could ask at a you know lactose plantarum 299v which is a well characterized and researched strain of, of l plantarum add that to your starter as the starter and that should mean that it gets a very good heads up on the lactobacilli that are just natively found on that cabbage i think our cultured food making nerds just got really excited <laughs> about how we can actually start to tailor our home ferments in um in these ways i think that's yeah, pretty cool you, you just have to be sure that the bug can eat what you're feeding it because mm. um, that can be a problem like lactobacillus rhamnosus gg for example doesn't eat lactose so years ago i had patients or and people and um, practitioners say hey can i just add it to my milk and turn it into to a yogurt and it's like well it doesn't eat that sugar so no now it does eat oat oligosaccharides so it, you know it will ferment oats quite well oh. for example or it does eat eat glucose so you could add a you know, little bit of glucose to your milk add the lgg to it and then that will eat that glucose component and still sour it you know still make sour compounds but it will survive because it just will, will die if it all it's got as a food source is lactose so it's trying to make sure that you're matching up what that strain can eat um in that in that food that you want to be fermented Otherwise so it, interesting that is so interesting. So really, this brings back the the core uh, reason for eating a very wide variety of plant foods, because then we give uh, the bugs that are trying to take hold in our guts a greater chance of finding a food that suits them to to culture themselves, literally. Yeah, that's exactly what, because you're essentially growing that inner garden. And, and the, the data clearly shows that. And, and I can say as a, as a clinician who treats and tests microbiome pre and mm. post dietary changes, it, it, the strategies work. So you know, the idea that fiber is fiber, it's just this one substance is, is 
not correct. Yeah. <laughs> you know, giving 100 grams a, a day of broccoli fiber is not the same as getting 100 grams of fiber from like, you know, a whole bunch of different legumes and nuts and seeds and fruit and veg. Mm. You're going to get a completely different range of microbes that are going to be fed through that process. And the wider variety of, of different food types we have, like plant food types and the wider, widest variety of colors, so like, you know, red rice and black rice and purple potatoes, um, means that we're feeding a wider variety of microbes. And, and that helps to diversify that inner garden that is which, is, so which we know key. is associated with a wide range of health benefits having that that diverse ecosystem so key because if you look at like the 90s and the early 2000s you could eat whatever you want really limited boring standard australian or american diet and just take your metamucil every day and you'll be right you know <laughs> but that's just so yeah. broken as a system yeah mm. yeah definitely I mean, and i think the the, the data around our, our um dwindling microbiomes <laughs> as westerners supports, yeah. supports the fact it's broken too because the yeah. western diet is really poor at feeding your, your microbiome um and, and and i'd also argue that that those sort of carbohydrate restricted diets are also poor at feeding your microbiome too um and it's perhaps worth flagging here too that that there are microbes in your gut that eat protein and there are microbes in your gut that thrive on high fat diets and we know these ones actually cause you harm too so oh, i think really? this, this 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 idea there that, that all bad bugs eat sugar and if you avoid sugar then then that's fine and you can eat tons of fat and, and you're and it won't harm your ecosystem whereas we've got plenty of data showing that um number of species eat bile for example and you've got a handful of species do anyway and when we eat you know heaps of heaps of fat we we produce more bile and the more fat we eat the more bile we produce and there's sulfur compounds in that bile which ends up feeding certain species in our gut and a clear example of this is a species called bilophila that really responds particularly to saturated fat that we find in dairy foods um, but also also been found in lard as well and its population will boom on a often on a keto type diet or a, a high a diet that's high in those foods and and this particular species converts that that um, sulfur in that um, bile to hydrogen sulfide gas which causes gut inflammation and gut leakiness mm, very and it's, it's implicated in, in in the pathogenesis of um, ulcerative colitis and um bile syndrome to, yeah to so let's to. talk about ulcerative colitis and crohn's because this is a particular area of clinical interest for you and it seems like there's a proliferation of people affected by these issues. Um, how, how are you best seeing these issues treated? Because it seems like it's been quite popular to go completely grain free. A lot of people have had a lot of relief through those sorts of protocols. How do you treat it? Yeah, so I see far more ulcerative colitis than I do see the Crohn's just mm -hmm. through luck of patient presentation. But yeah. my my approach is is really focusing on on nurturing the microbiota as much as possible and, and looking at at the epidemiological or population data that is really trying to find clues as to why we're having an epidemic of ulcerative colitis. You know, you go back I think from the 1990s to now, like the incidence of ulcerative colitis has increased 11 fold. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know. And and it's something we see that's, that that changes as nations industrialize and change their 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 westernize their their diet. Yeah. So there's been a number of studies trying to tease out what it is about a Western diet that is problematic. Um, and it's not eating whole grains and legumes that comes out of their studies yeah. as being problematic. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I'm looking at also colitis, I'm really trying to nurture the species that decrease inflammation and promote healing of of the damaged colon mucosa. And that would be things like legumes and and whole grains, wide variety of plant foods, multi multi colored 
and and that approach works well in in practice. And there's some um, very positive supportive research around this idea of nurturing your butyrate producing bacteria. And it's really hard to nurture butyrate producing bacteria if you don't eat whole grains or legumes. Mm. You know, unless you're eating lots of cooked and cooled potatoes and some other funky root vegetables, it's pretty hard to get the resistant starch required um, in in those food groups. You get lots of other sorts of fibers, which is great, but you're not getting the ones that nurture the butyrate producing bacteria specifically. And that, that's that group that needs to be really targeted for, for good outcomes, I think, in ulcerative colitis patients. And I started to learn also about um, how some probiotics can be histamine releasing and some can be histamine degrading. And I looked because obviously when you have uh, mold illness, you have very high levels of histamine in your blood and uh, you can feel really that buzzy, jittery, very anxious kind of feeling. And uh, this particular course of probiotics amplified that set of symptoms as well. And so that's what caused me like, what was in this probiotic that made me go this way? And, uh, and that's when I started to see that there were some that could cause inflammation in too high a population in your gut. Can you talk a little bit about this research and, uh, and what people are finding? And I, I, I guess I bring it up because I'm really passionate about people having uh, accurate support, not just kind of going, oh, yay, probiotics are amazing and I'm just going to buy them off the internet and heal myself when yeah. sometimes it can be a bit damaging. Yeah, I mean it's interesting, interesting experience and um, and discussion points too. I mean, I mean, looking at that, the histamine degrading and and producing research component, looking at probiotics, I think it's a very under researched area. And and when I see the claims made online around around this, I sort of. Um, shy away i'm not sure of the right word for it but I'm, I'm surprised at the level of claims that are made around it based on the le- the, the poor level of data we actually have okay, because right. a, a lot of that research is around is, is it's done for 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 the wine industry where they mm-hmm. add a strain of so a few different probiotics to strains within species to to wine to see whether it will break down histamine to help prevent people getting histamine reactions from wine that's mm. where the research comes from gotcha. um, and, and people are assuming that can it can do because it can do this in a bottle of wine <laughs> that's just sitting there that it'll do that in your gut while it's temporarily making its way through to to degrade histamine for example right um, so I we're at a bit of a correlation stage uh, yeah well, i think it's a, a, it's a pretty a big leap data. for me and, yeah. and the other aspect is is people are often making species level claims from strain level data Mm-hmm. And I might have to take a step back to explain that properly, but w- within a given species of bacteria, so let's go with Lactobacillus acidophilus because you've all heard of that. Mm-hmm. There are, are potentially thousands of different strains within that species, and and the way I explain it to my patients is: look at breeds, look at dogs. You know, um, all dogs are the same species, Canis familiaris, but there's the a difference between an Irish Wolfhound and a Chihuahua. <laughs> you know. But they're all dogs. One of them is a dog my husband wants, and the other <laughs> one is a dog my husband does not want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't, I won't guess which one. <laughs> but but there's there's vast differences. In this case, they, they differ in how they, they physically look, for example, and, and behave in mental capacity and things like that. Now, when it comes to bacteria, we don't, they don't necessarily look different, but they have different genes turned off or on, those different strains, which um, determines 
simple things like whether they can survive gastric acid, whether they can survive bile salts, how they attach to your gut, whether they attach to your gut, whether they produce you know, compounds that are um, pro-inflammatory, whether they produce compounds that are anti-inflammatory, whether they help heal a leaky gut, whether they might be actually <laughs> problematic in killing off some of your good guys. Mm. All those things are actually what we call strain-specific qualities, depending on what genes are turned off or on. Um, and that means that we can't make extrapolate research that was done on, oh, all lactose cassia is good at breaking down histamine. It's like, no, if you look, if you follow back and look at that reference, you'll find that three strains out of the nine that were tested could break down histamine, and a couple strains produce histamine. And, you, you know, it, it's it's such a strain-specific quality. Um, and and, and I, I'm sure that in five years' time, someone will bring out a really good, well-researched um, probiotic that that can degrade histamine in your gut while you actually take it. And um, I, but I think it's products making that claim now. I, I don't think are actually based on on good hard science at this point. They're, oh, they're based okay. on, on on wine level data. Mm. <laughs> the most part of going, okay, it can do this in a bottle of wine or or ace one of the strains can. Therefore, I'm going to make the assumption that the strain I put in my supplement, which is different than that one that was in that wine, will have the same impact. And I don't think we can make. We know for sure we can't make that sort of assumption. Yeah, it's too early. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Good to know. Uh, and so, does it then? breed the the idea that we i mean sometimes we are trial and erroring when we try probiotics for ourselves uh, and when a clinician tries a probiotic on a person is there given it's such a new science an element of trial and error sometimes yeah well i i would say that 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 happens frequently mm. <laughs> with, with self-prescription probably most of the time and yeah. and, and with, with some way the way that some clinicians prescribe definitely it's in that realm of, of experimentation and, and trial and error um for me you know as someone that's been researching probiotics for for nearly 20 years there's a whole large data set now that shows what certain probiotic strains are good at doing mm-hmm. um so for me i, I don't in general experiment, um, I will use the strains that have been shown to work for the condition that I'm treating. So if I have a patient who has, presents my, my office with constipation um, and slow gut transit time, I'll, I'll give the strain of uh, Bifidobacterium lactis HN019 that we have human clinical trials showing that it speeds up colon transit time. Mm-hmm. And they take it and all of a sudden they're pooing better and their poo is much softer. You know, so it, it there, there's, a, there's a, a large body of evidence now, and we're speaking hundreds of clinical trials that have got those specific strain details where we've trialed on human pet populations, and some things they work for and some things they don't. Even that best research strain in the world, you know, L-Rhabnosis GG, very good for antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Mm. Great data set, you know, meta-analysis level data, the highest data set we've got to show, show a proof of efficacy. But it doesn't work to prevent urinary tract infections. Mm-hmm. We've got clinical trials showing it clearly doesn't work. But there's another strain, um, Lactose uh, Rhamnosus GR1, same species but different strain. And this one was discovered by Gregor Reed, which is where the GR1 comes from. Mm-hmm. And this one does work to prevent urinary tract infections. You know, So it just has a few different genes turned off or on that, that can dictate whether something works or not. So I'm not going to use the one that doesn't work for UTI prevention, but I'll use the strain that does work. And, and if you don't do the research and look at that, then you're just experimenting. You know, let's just try it. Maybe it'll work. I don't know what these strains do. Maybe they'll do something. Um, that's I, I don't advise that probiotic <laughs> approach. Yeah. I advise that we we base it on evidence. And over over the the period of time, that the the evidence has actually increased to the amount that there's very few presentations I see in clinic where I'd have to trial something new. I actually can look at the evidence and go, okay, this strain works, and we'll certainly start off our treatments with the, the evidence-based probiotics. Mm. And um, 
And what are you most excited about in the upcoming research projects? Is there anything that's kind of on the horizon that you just can't wait to see the paper come out for? Uh, I think some of the research that's looking at, at you know, mood, stress, anxiety, and depression, and um, the use of prebiotics and probiotics as, as treatments. I think that's an area. And, and same with, with Alzheimer's and cognitive decline and using pre and probiotics. I think those are areas that I'm extremely excited to see how there's a bunch of research going on now, and I'm looking forward to seeing the, the outcomes, which just means that we can be better clinicians and that like that as more research is done on probiotics for depression we'll work out which ones are useful tools for this and which ones are not you know mm. again this is going to be a strain specific trait that some some lactobacilli can produce gaba um, some bacteria can can you know stimulate uh, gut serotonin production and some strains can't and as more research is done teasing out these things and more research is done administering the right strain in clinical trial scenarios we, we get better at treating and these these sort of conditions, and we get to essentially add another sort of um, tool to our toolbox to help people with, you know, depression and anxiety, amazing, and Alzheimer's. You know, so I, I think broadly speaking, all I'm excited about all new pro and prebiotic research, and I still get extremely excited doing a medline search to see what's changed since last time I went and had a look. But I think those areas will, are are definitely watch and see because there's exciting developments occurring. That is super cool. And do you think that's sort of born from this uh, realization that the gut and the brain are so intri intricately connected to each other? Yep. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Because you, you go back 15 years ago, people weren't talking about probiotics no. being useful for anxiety and depression. We we're talking about probiotics for gut stuff, definitely. Um, but we weren't looking at those those areas. So that definitely is that, that gut microbiota brain linkage Um is, is that, that, that idea or recognition of how important that element is in, in human body functioning has really come to the fore and, and, and that has, is really pushing research in that area. So as I said, it's exciting to see where you know, probiotics and multiple sclerosis, probiotics and Parkinson's disease, like a lot of these sort of neurological degenerative conditions, we're going to start seeing um, good, good research using a, a gut-focused approach to see how they can modify that disease risk or outcome. Incredible. And before I let you go, I really want to hear a little bit more about uh, the probioticadvisor.com, uh, which is your vision for really bringing uh, probiotic uh, information out to clinicians, to regular people who are interested. How did that, I mean, was it literally because you just saw so many people confused out there asking so many questions, yep. other, <laughs> other clinicians asking you? I mean, I know that's how my e-courses started. You're just like, I literally cannot answer individual questions about uh, Betty and the kettle and, uh, you know, Amber and her mold situation. I need to put it into a course. Was it that same kind of, you know, your inbox is filling up. You're like, I need to create a resource. It was it was similar. I mean, for mm. me, um, well, so using my PhD, I was I was teaching uh, naturopathic students as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I always had that bit, and I was collecting resources. So uh, as studies on probiotic strains were done, I was creating this sort of three different paper documents. <laughs> yeah. One was the research on that strain. Two is what what supplements contain that strain and what food contains that strain. And 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 for the first, you know, for the, probably started back in 2002, 2003, um, I was essentially collating and bringing the the, the, the evidence based on research, probiotic research together. And then I'd be sharing that with practitioners and obviously prescribing that way to my patients. Um, but then it gets to the point where 
it, the paper document is the three different paper documents are now 50 pages long. It's yeah. not really that useful to be flipping around. So I essentially created a, a, a online database so you can more easily search by product or by strain or by by health condition to, to look at the research that's been done on those those products in that area. And because I've always loved teaching, um, and for the simple reasons to you that you're getting you know lots of questions around this this this, this content, I sort of brought a bunch of courses. Um, to be available online too because you know i think people need to know about about their their gut microbiome to make informed decisions they need to know how to look after the vaginal microbiome to make informed decisions they know how need to know how to, to, to properly evaluate and engage with probiotics to make an informed decision uh, on how to best use them you know so so that's been been my drivers as well amazing and we've got all the details for that in the show notes uh, so that people can jump on and see what courses are available it's an incredible resource i've been digging around this week just kind of it's like a little menu in there i'm like what do i do first so um, <laughs> i'm really looking forward to getting to know it a lot better and uh, and i certainly want to thank you for your time in helping us get to know the microbiota a lot better today uh, Jason, it's just been fantastic and I can feel a part two coming on already. There are a bunch of questions I still have. So we'll just have to do that. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, yeah, thanks so much. Uh, you're very welcome. I thoroughly enjoyed our, our conversations today. So yeah, I'm looking forward to a part two into the future as well. Lots of good tangents. That, that yeah. for me is what always makes a great show for people. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com. And there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body, and mind topics, as well as kids, and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action. And there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.